0: So when I got close to the bank, I pulled the mask down and I ran in and everyone on the f- ground. And, you know, and started screaming and blah, blah, blah. And, and I jumped the counter, you know, gave the gals the bag, said, give me that money and screaming. And I think I got away at like 20,000. So I ran out of the bank and got to go into like half a block and got in the truck and took off. The next day in front page of the newspaper, it said bank robber leave shoes behind and had a picture of those petty loafers in the snowbank. I go to Chicago, my wife was calling me, I was calling her and she's, you know, they're looking for you and I say, yeah, I know, and you know, talking about my son.
1: Decided to turn myself in. The rest is history. A man who has spent his youth pursuing a life of crime decides to hand himself over to the federal justice system. With hopes of redemption and the beginning of a new life, could not imagine that his criminal career has barely begun or that he would spend countless years in the tutelage and friendship of some of the nation's most notorious underworld figures. This is the extraordinary story of Robert Gene McNeese. You know, it's just, it just crazy, you know? You're doing better than most people from jail. <laughs> so what are you gonna do with the money though? You're in there for life,
0: right? Yeah, but I mean, I had a responsibility. I mean, you know, I, I still took care of my Kid and stuff like that, you know. Oh,
1: that's right. You still got all this. You know,
0: I mean, you know, I had a
1: house, and you know, I mean, I kind of gave it away. You know, I mean I didn't, I didn't spend it. You know. But that makes even more of a man that you're still taking care of family and stuff, and you're you're doing it from behind bars. There's people that act like they can't do it, and they've got everything Right. And they're not in jail. Well, you're right.
0: Yeah. There was a. Hey, I didn't realize how many lazy people there were until I started my own business. when after getting out. I mean, I work seven days a week, and I I like it. You know, I don't. It don't bother me. Yeah. But I, I mean, I can't find people that want to work five days a week. You know. But uh,
1: yeah. Yeah, we're all in the same boat. Yeah, it's just insane. There are a few things that I find more rewarding than partnering up with talented, high-energy people, whether it's in podcasting, manufacturing, or any other endeavor. When my friend Bill Stax called and suggested that I do an episode on Robert, I was immediately impressed with his pedigree as a man who'd spent considerable time locked up with some of the more famous mob bosses of our generation. In the end, I'm even more impressed with his level of intelligence, drive, and ambition. But even these qualities pale in comparison to his affable demeanor, his quiet, unassuming reserve for a man who's rubbed shoulders with some of the toughest guys to lead the underworld, and for a man who's about to tell you a story that is likely to blow your minds
0: and that is when i ran into my first mobster
1: the urban dictionary has defined a term to describe the process of making a person extraordinary that was chris Finari, christy tick a traumatic trial by fire that will define not only their future the essence of who and what they are to become
0: Nikki scarple vick amuso
1: Salem bowl fat tony salerno tony ducks i'm william cross this is Extraordination. My name
0: is Robert McNeese. I am from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I was born in August of 1965. We live on the outskirts of town, which is like a little farm, country-style home. I was raised predominantly by my stepfather, Bob Goddard, who's passed away now. But my mother, she had not such a healthy lifestyle as a child. I had her first child when she was 14. She subsequently had 10 children. and. They were spread out all over the place. Um, I've never lived with all of my brothers and sisters under one roof. And I think I've probably lived with my real mother maybe a year of my entire life, where I actually lived in the same house with her. And, unless I was a child that I don't remember, you know, a baby. But, but I've always was in really close contact with her. That being said, my mother and father were divorced when I was three weeks old. And she met Bob Goddard, and they got married. And we lived there with Bob and, and her. My earliest childhood memory would be, I think I was five or six. We had those big yard darts. Back in the 70s, they sold these yard darts. They had a little circle and you throw it on the grass and you throw these darts that were pretty really wicked looking. About 10, 12 inches long, had a little fan thing on the back, you throw it, and a big metal piece of steel, like an arrow on of right in front of it. I was running and my brother, he threw the yard dart up in the air to try to get it in that little circle and got it right and straight in my head and it's stuck in there. For some reason, I always remember that, and my brothers, we kind of laugh about it. I remember laying on the porch, and then my stepdad running down the gravel road with me in his arms, and I could remember that yard guard bouncing on my head. And I was thinking, you know, just like surreal. But it healed, and everything was fine. Uh, that's probably my earliest memory, of being a child. My mother, she left him, but she had a child uh, with Bob, uh, my little sister, Sean. And Bob raised Sean and I. Up until like the 6th grade, 7th grade, then I went to my real father's, who lived up in Minnesota. So I went up there and stayed up in St. Paul, Minnesota for approximately 8 months, maybe, maybe 6 months. I had started school up there, as Maplewood Junior High School. After 6, 8 months, I decided to go back to Iowa. I didn't tell anyone, so I guess it would be called running away. <laughs> and I went and stayed with my oldest brother, who was of age at the time. And he had a girlfriend, and he had a son, my nephew E.J., And I think I was like 13, maybe almost 14. When I left Bob's house and went to Minnesota with my father, my mother took my younger sister, Sean, and moved her in with her. Then my mother wanted to get married again, and there was some issue with Sean and her future husband. So Sean went back to live with Bob, her real father, and they lived in a small town in Iowa. I went down and stayed with Bob, too, for about another year I stayed with him. Then me and Sean decided to run away <laughs> again, and I was 14. She, I think, was 13, maybe 12, something like that. She was, you know, younger. But we stayed in an apartment that my mother lived in in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I guess that's my first adventure as a child. <laughs> I lived in the bars as a child. Bob Goddard operated a bar, and we lived upstairs. And I'd get up in the mornings and sweep and mop the floors and stock the bar before school. My mother's best friend was a lady named B, and she had four sons. And one of the sons was like a hustler. So, jewelry and Rolex watches and things like that. So, he was in the bar that my mother was at one time, and I was in there. And he asked if I wanted to do any work for him, you know, if he had some work, if I needed to earn some extra money. And I said, sure. I had known him my entire life because they were friends of the families. So, you know, I do odds and ends for Jody. Well, he came and asked if I wanted to go for three or four weeks in the summer to work on the carnival, on an event thing that he had. I said, sure. At this time, I was kind of like, had made my own decisions, you know. And my little sister came with me, too. We actually worked for Alice Presley's father. We worked for the estate of Alice Presley. His father was the executor of his estate. You know, I guess he was kind of a crook too. <laughs> he wouldn't let a nickel go by. If somebody wanted to use Alvis' likeness or anything, he had to get a piece of the action. This was in 1978, I think, or 79. It was like after his death. And what it was, it was like a giant semi, and in the middle, the stairs came down, and you'd give him a little ticket and go up the stairs, and you'd go to the right, and there's a wax figure of Alvis Presley as a child. And then you'd walk a little bit further down, And there's another figure of him in his military uniform. And then there's another one with a guitar. And and then, like, his last show was out in Vegas. He had the big rhinestones and that big jumpsuit. They had that one there. And then the the last wax figure was Alvis laying in a coffin, like, with his arms crossed. The line was three blocks long. And the women would beat so hard on the glass where the coffin was that they shattered it as he was in there dead you know alvis you're dead you know it was crazy it really was insane it was like man and they had to get bulletproof glass in there you know they had speakers on the outside blaring his music got a tour of graceland you know behind the scenes you know met alvis's father i think three times like he would come and he brought a truck with three different cars on it that were alice's actual cars that we had outside of the wax museum you know, he thought it would bring in more customers. You know, so I got to ride in the back seat of uh, one of his limousines. So that was pretty cool. You know, you know that's big shit when you're when you're a kid. You know, I was 14, and that is when I ran into my first monster, and I didn't know he was a monster, <laughs> and that was Danny Marino. So Danny Marino was an alleged Gambino soldier at that time. But he was the manager, or the I'm not sure what his position was there. He was, he was a big shot with this carnival. And Danny would be around and he'd buy me and my sister lunch, you know, and just, you know, he was just a nice, nice guy. And that was my first encounter with a mobster. About that time, went back and I started doing, you know, like stealing stereos out of cars, living at a friend's house. I was 15 years old. And I got in trouble with the police, like a burglary or something. I can't remember what it was for. It was something stupid, I'm sure. You know, when I was on my own and staying with my buddy and, you know, we'd go out to the farmhouses and break in and, you know, just things like that. So I went to Eldora Training School, which is like the juvenile prison. I went there for a year. It was okay, it was like a big dormitory-style facility. You have a little locker room area, you change and shower and all that. And The dormitories upstairs is where you lived at, and watch TV, and I had a job in the paint shop. Took painting classes there. I mean, it was just you know a bunch of young kids running around, causing grief. But yeah, I did it like a year there and got out. Started running the streets, just running the streets, uh, doing bad things. Had an incident, me and my friend, Danny, We went to go get some pot, some marijuana, and back then it cost $7.50 for a quarter ounce. I'm not sure what it is nowadays, but it was dirt cheap back then, you know, compared to now. And it was this black fella that was supposed to be a friend of ours, we thought. But I gave him the $7.50, and he went into the bar in town, and he didn't come out. So we're sitting there, you know, in, in Danny's car, and I'm wondering, man, when's he coming? After about close to an hour, I decided to go in there. Mind you, this is back, in, you know, it was many, many years ago. It was the only black bar in the town. You know, I was nervous, but I go in there and he's sitting at the bar with like three or four guys. And I walk up to him and he says, what do you want? I said, hey, you got my money, you know? He act like he didn't recognize me. going hey, get out of here. I don't know what you're talking about, kid. The buddies were all gritting on me, all mean and stuff. So I said, man. So I left and I had done a burglary, I don't know, a week before that, and had some guns that I got from there. So I took two guns and I went back to the bar and opened up the door and just pulled both of the pistols out and just started shooting and shot three of them and told that dude I wanted my money back. Like about, a, I don't know, a week, week and a half later, I'm outside of a telephone booth that's in a parking lot. So I pull up to it, I use the phone, hang up, I get back in my car. I just put it in drive, the window's down, and it was like on TV, this detective comes up to my car window and has some papers in his hand and says, Robert McNeese, we have a warrant for your arrest. And so of course I swore it and leave, get a high speed chase with him. I mean, it was a good one for about 25 minutes. Driving a Plymouth Fury and the front tire came off of it, going around a corner and it just sparks everywhere. And so I was just like discombobulated for a second, and open up the door and get out. And well, this detective, right, as soon as I got out, he was up there on me and he grabbed me and threw me to the ground and started beating me in the chest with his gun, talking about, You could have killed me. You know, I mean, it hit me so hard where it was cutting it, you know, it was bleeding. And so because of that issue with the cops, they dropped all the charges of the bar incident. So I got lucky there. About a week after that, I get busted for breaking into a place and I go back to Eldora. I got out when I was 18 out of Eldora and got in trouble immediately and went to state prison until I was 20. And I meet a girl. I met her through a guy that I knew who was incarcerated. And she started writing me while I was in prison. And that's when I met her. But she was writing me for like six months before I got out you know, just pen pal thing. And then when I got out, I moved in with her and we got married and six months she was pregnant. I wasn't working, never had a job at all. I was selling drugs or robbing people, it was just being a knucklehead. My son was just born and it was right after Christmas, I think it was like in February. And then I robbed a bank. <laughs> While I was incarcerated, I was with a guy by the name of John Oliver from Springfield, Illinois. And he's originally from Iowa. Me and him were buddies in the the prison. His brother-in-law was a guy named David Grandstaff. And David Grandstaff and John Oliver, they were indicted in Arizona for the largest cash-armed bank robbery in history. They got like 3.6 million or something like that in cash. A partner of theirs, Bruce Fenimore from Iowa, he gets pulled over driving a Corvette and he had $100,000 on the front seat. And so they arrest him and he immediately cooperates and points the finger at John and Dave. They wrote a book about the whole incident called The Gang They Couldn't Catch. Believe it or not, John and Dave were found not guilty by a jury. <laughs> yeah, John was a good dude, but he used to tell me all about like, how to rob banks. And you know, when I was, we'd walk the prison yard, and say, you know, this is how you do it, blah, blah, blah. And, all. and I did, you know, full of a million questions. So after I was out for a while, you know, when I we got out when I was 20, I said, man, I got to hurt now. I need some money. I said, I'm going to try that. And so I got these size 13 penny loafers. But I only wear size nine, a trench coat. And then I had a Spider-Man mask up, a stocking cap over that. So when I got close to the bank, I pulled the mask down and I ran inside and I pulled out two pillowcases and gave them to the tellers and said, give me the money. You know, and started screaming and blah blah blah. And see, I didn't have a gun, but John had always told me to make a big noise. You know, make noise. So I ran in, and everyone on the ground. And and I jumped the counter. You know, gave the gals the bag. Said, "Give me that money!" And screaming. And I think I got away at like twenty thousand. So I ran out of the bank and it was snowing out. I left the penny loafers and went window like half a block and got in the truck and took off. Um, the next day at the front page of the newspaper, it said bank robber leaves shoes behind and had a picture of those penny loafers in the snowbank. Yeah, so I go to Chicago and stayed at a hotel up there for a week or so, and my wife was calling me, I was calling her and she was, you know, they're looking for you and I said, yeah, I know. And you know, talking about my son. So I decided to turn myself in. And that's what I did, I turned myself in with my attorney, I don't know, a couple days later. The rest is history. (laughs) So I get a federal case for, for bank robbery, and they sentenced me to 105 months in federal prison. I was nervous wreck, I was scared. This is how it works, when you're in state prison, they talk about the feds, you know, how tough it is, and you know, blah, blah, blah. But then when you're in the feds, they talk about how tough the state, you know, it's just vice versa, so. But I didn't know that at the time. I was nervous, I was scared, and I got a portray that image to a tough guy, and, you know, but a lot of things was going through my head. So I'm in the county jail, stay there like 10 months, and I was finally sentenced. I was the first person sentenced under the anti-terrorism crime, you know, where they changed the sentencing guidelines, where they went from parole to doing 85%. So I had to do 85% of 105 months. I went to a prison in Wisconsin. It was a medium security facility, and, Well they you know, they take you on a bus. It looks like a Greyhound bus, but it's a Bureau of Prisons bus. So they picked me up and it took this place in Wisconsin was like four hours from Cedar Rapids. They drove us to Chicago, spent the night in Metropolitan Correctional Center in downtown Chicago. Then we got on a bus again in the morning and we went all over picking up prisoners and finally got to this place in Wisconsin like five o'clock at night. I get off the bus, you see a doctor real quick, see if you're if you're okay, and they check you off. Then you see like a detective that's in charge of the prison. Um, so you see him and you, are you scared? Is there anybody gonna get you? All oh, you know, they ask you these questions, you say no. Then they release it to the yard and you go to the unit that you were assigned to. And I was assigned a wood unit. And so they send you off, they give you a bed roll with a blanket and two sheets and a pillowcase and some shampoo. And they point to the, the unit you live in. So here I am with all these guys a thousand guys walking around staring at me I've got this roll under my arm and I'm walking down this long sidewalk I mean it's like a block long and I'm thinking man this place is big you know and these thinking, these look mean people here. and all of a sudden I hear Bobby Bobby screaming at me and I see this this older fellow walking towards me so I stop and he comes up and shakes my hand gives me a hug goes oh remember me I said, no, and it was Danny Marino. <laughs> and he remembered who I was. And so he goes, yeah, i just talked talk for a minute about that. And um, he said, where'd they put you? in? I told him the wood unit. And he says, oh, he goes, that's great. He goes, I got a buddy of mine that uh, he's looking for a roommate. He goes, let's go talk to him. That was Chris Finari, Christy Tick. He received a hundred year sentence along with several other individuals for being part of the commission. He was the alleged consigliere for the commission. So he had a hundred years, um, but in the end he finally beat his case and was released. And I became Christie's roommate for a couple of years while in Wisconsin. He was—he passed away unfortunately, but he lived a great life. He was a hundred years old, I think, when he passed away. Um, so he, he, you know, passed away a free man, which was a good deal. But we used to chit chat and you know i never asked anybody that i met through the years about their illegal activities or if they did something or didn't do something because i was i learned as i got older you don't do that but with christy you know i'm a young punk kid i'm full of questions i ask him all sorts of how many how many guys you kill and you know did you shoot people and you know stuff like that he just looked at me like i was crazy because you know you don't ask people those questions but i didn't know any better so he actually knew guys like Bucky Luciano, you know, the old-time mobsters, the, the original ones, I guess. And I always found that fascinating that he, you know, crossed paths with with these guys, these famous gangsters. So I was impressed with it. And he owned a bar, I think it was called the Walnut Club in, in New York. He's telling me about in the bar, he had pictures of him with all these old-time gangsters. Frank Costello, he kind of, like, idolized Frank Costello. Very quiet. I mean quiet, quiet, and he talked in a real raspy voice. how you doing? Because he smoked these cigarette gunhills and he would just smoke one after another, he told me, when he was three, and he quit when he came to prison. So he hadn't had a cigarette for like four years when I met him, but his voice was real, real raspy. You know, a gentle grandfather is what he reminded you of, you know? But he kind of like opened my eyes to prison and, and, you know, don't trust people and, you know, you do things this way and that way and be a gentleman and, you know... He kind of, I think, set me on the path of, of, you know, who I am today, as far as the way that I respect people and I, I try to, you know, do the right things and, you know, be as polite as possible, things like that. You know, things that don't hurt, hurt you to do, you know. And so I stayed there for about, yeah, a couple of years. There was another guy in there named Biff Halloran. He owned the Halloran Hotel in, in New York and a uh, wealthy guy. But he was in there for mob activities not sure what he actually did, but a very, very smart businessman. And he got me started doing schooling. So I took a bunch of classes. I discovered that I like creating things like, you know, marketing campaigns, things like that. And so I started numerous ventures while incarcerated and had some that were some pretty good money makers and some that weren't, you know, but I had all these mob guys that I'd be hanging with, you know, in federal prison, you predominantly hang with who your clique is or whatever, who your car is, you know, all these different things. But I hung with the Italians from New York and that whole time that I was incarcerated, that's who I was with. So I'd be getting advice from all these guys and then, you know, they'd say, do this, do it. And, you know, they'd be making a joke about it, you know, but it made me do my time a lot better. And I got pretty smart at it. I get transferred from Wisconsin. And I go to Atlanta, Georgia, USB Atlanta. Get off the bus. Again, it's the Bureau of Prisons bus where it should take you know six hours to fly from Wisconsin to Georgia. It took like three weeks to get there. You know, stayed here for a week, here for two days, another jail for a day, and you know they just bounce you around. They used to call it diesel therapy back in the day, but it took me about three weeks to get to Atlanta. Pull up there in that prison. It's in the heart of the ghetto. It's on McDonough Boulevard in Atlanta, Georgia. there's a chicken shop and a liquor shop right there across the street from the prison it's just it's just like wow and again the same kind of treatment you know you see a doctor make sure you're healthy and you see a psychiatrist make sure you're good and then security guide make sure you don't don't have any problems so i get let out in the yard well as i get out from the shoe area where they have you you know the new people coming in as i walk out two guys come up to me and introduce themselves, and it was Vick Amuso and Mike Tassetta. Vick Amuso was the alleged boss of the Lucchese crime family, and Mike Tassetta was the alleged underboss for the New Jersey fraction of the Lucchese crime family. And they came up very friendly, gave me a hug, and had a big sack full of cosmetic, you know, shampoo, soap, deodorant, some coffee, you know, just, a you little know, care packages, what they do for all new guys. I knew a lot about Vic through Christy because Christy is the one that brought Vic into the life. Um, I believe that that's how it went down. I'm not 100%. I didn't ask for that. But Christy was like his guy. I mean, they never spoke a bad word about him. And so Christy had sent word to Vic that I was coming there to look out for me. Vic says to me, Christy has never asked me or anyone that I know of to look out for anybody you know, that's in prison. So you must be pretty close to him for him to, to do that. And so I just explained, you know, I said, yeah, you know, he taught me how to make pasta. I never, you know, I didn't know how to make none of that stuff. So, but yeah, we used to cook and do all that. And so me and Vic became very close, um, real close. So I mean, we, we, I mean, I guess I'd say he my, was my best friend when I was in prison and we walked the prison yard every day together. And so, yeah, we got real close to Vic. Vic's very intelligent. He surrounds himself with guys that are are intelligent. At least he did it while in prison. And and so he encouraged me to continue uh, education and he would help me with with my businesses. Dumb things like I did a dating service. And this was back before they had computers or anything like that, you know. Back then you'd send X amount of dollars and you'd get a list of like 10 beautiful women, you know, that want to meet you. So I made up this little thing is three pages. Would you like to change your life? Are you tired of the one 800 dating lines? Let me help you. And you know, that kind of bullshit. And so I got a hell of a list broker in Chicago, Brian Hoika. You know, I'm in prison, but I'm still using the phone and stuff. So I told him what I was doing. He said, oh, he goes, you want some hot list date lines, addresses and stuff. I said, yeah, I guess he sends me these lists. They cost me 10 cents a name and I sent out a 1,000 of them with the three pages, and I charged them $29.95. And so I had this little thing they had to fill out an application, their height, weight, and all that. They would send it back with either a check or cash. And most of the time it was cash because credit cards weren't that big of a deal back then. So I did a 1,000, and on an average mail out like that, it was two, 3% is pretty good, you know, it's the average. But I got like 35 or 36% on the first mail out. So I called Brian up. He goes, oh, I got like about a quarter of a million, half a million names. I said, okay, I says, well, let me get 10,000 this time. So I did 10,000 and I got in the 20% range. And it's like crazy. Cause what I was doing was for the women, I would tell Brian, I need 250 names of females that are between 25 and 30, 250 between 30 and 35. And so I do it by their age and match them up. I was having someone do this for me on the street. They were getting the money. You know, we're supposed to have an account well, what they were doing was all the money from the envelopes that was cash they put in their pocket and not fulfill the order and I wasn't aware of this so everything's going good I mean I got this dating service everyone in the joints laughing at me I'm making good about like 23 or 24 years old I'm making you know 20 or thirty thousand a month so I'm doing good next thing I know they call me to the visiting room so I go into the visit room and uh, here comes two gentlemen they come up to me and they, they introduce themselves they were postal inspectors. They said that I was defrauding customers, I said, whoa, what do you mean? Because they threw me for a loop, I didn't know. That. And so they said that I wasn't fulfilling orders, I was just taking their money. And I think they generally believed me, you know, because I didn't know. I said, well, listen, this is, you know, I have a friend that does it out there, and he, you know, gets paid. And I said, but I will take anybody that complained, take care of it, and make sure it's all straightened out. And uh, I did. So at the end of the day, my couple hundred grand that I had saved was gone for you know to take care of the postal inspectors and all that. But I did several of those while incarcerated, and the bad thing is they stayed on top of me. Then after that, you know, I mean I was like getting letters from people that worked for Playboy and Jim South, the owns World Modeling out in California. And these are these guys that I was introduced to, you know, that I was doing business with, and so I was putting heat on them, and it was just crazy all because of a dating service. <laughs> so I'm in prison with Vic and I starting to meet other guys and I get indicted. I get indicted in Tampa, Florida. Importation of heroin is what my charge was. And I think money laundering. I don't know I had several charges there, but the big one was importation. And I had like five months left before I was supposed to be released. So they fly me to Tampa, Florida take me in front of a judge and I'm indicted, you know, formally charged, and uh, I go to trial. The guy that cooperated against me was a Gambino guy by the name of Jimmy Spazzato. He set me up so that he, you know, got some drugs. Mind you, I'm in prison, so I mean, I, I didn't see him or touch the drugs or anything like that, but I had put people together, but he took the drugs or gave them to the cops or however they did that. So they had a strong case, but I still went to trial anyway. And, you know, I was found guilty and sentenced to life. I had life plus I think was a hundred years. Young kid, you know, life sentence, some like torn pieces. And yeah, I remember, you know, going into the shower in the jail, Hillboro County Jail, my first day at trial. Because you know, the first day is that you have your defense attorney gets up and tells the jury, what a great guy you are. And then this prosecutor gets up and tells the jury what a piece of shit you are, you know. And and it just sounded like I was a bigger piece of shit than I was a good guy. I mean, it's just, he made me sound like I was just a horrible, horrible guy. And I'm like, man. So I went in the shower and I, I cried. It was the only time I cried. Because I cried right then in the shower. I was like, man. It was sad. It was a bad situation. And I knew I was facing a tough road. And they only busted him with 10 pounds of heroin. That was what they charged me with, was 10 pounds. Well, then come sentencing, because with these recordings and stuff they added, they say that if I did it for 18 months, they averaged 200 pounds a month, times 18 months. That's how I got a life sentence. There was no 18 months and all, you know, so that was pretty discouraging. But I had a good shot at beating that case, and I, I didn't, because they took all of my lawyer notes all my investigative notes and stuff from my attorney and then private investigator and turn them over to the government and the government didn't give them to the court to check you know they're supposed to peruse each page to see if there's some stuff in. they said that i was attempting to put on a fraudulent defense. that's why they took the documents and that was it that's all they said well then even if you're putting on a fraudulent defense then an outside prosecutor is supposed to come in and look at the documents and say yeah, they, you know, boom, and and none of that went on. So I had a good shot at it. And I, you know, took it on the chin and got a life sentence uh, and I went back to prison. So I go back to, to prison, I'm in Atlanta, and uh, I'm with a guy, Ferris Alexander. Ferris Alexander was the porn king. <laughs> I get into talking to him. He's 80 years old or 75 years old. He's an older guy, and you know, always sitting by himself on the benches outside. Nick would always say hello to him. So I'd sat down with him one day, and we started talking. And then I discovered he's the porn king. You <laughs> know, he's telling me he's from Minnesota. from was from Minnesota as a child. I lived there for about eight months or something. You know, my dad lived up there. And so we started talking, and he started talking about this pornography and what he was doing. And he used to date like Marilyn Chambers. I mean, they have adult video news. It's a big organization, the pornography industry. And they have a hall of fame, which is recognized by everybody, right? And who's the first person ever to be inducted? Him. (laughs) So he's in the hall of fame for pornography. He was from Lebanon, Palestinian guy, but no short, fat guy. And his business sense was top notch as far as pornography goes. So I became a pornographer in prison. I started buying, Ferris was selling me tapes for $3.50 a piece, and again, no internet was around yet, so if you wanted to have pornography, you had to make it yourself, or you had to go to a, book, a bookstore and purchase it, and the average cost back then for a cassette, a 60-minute film, was $60. He was selling to me for three fifty. So again, I did a little brochure like I did with my dating service, a little brochure, and, had everything fixed up real nice and sent them out to a friend of his. And that guy was like, I don't know, a printing guru or whatever. it came back and it looked like I was a pro at it, you know? And so I did a mailing with, with these. I got it from Brian, again, this list broker. I got lists of individuals that were calling the 1-900 sex lines that they had or that bought adult items through the mail in the last 30 days. So I targeted them people with the mail out and I got like a 12% return. I'm giving them three movies for $59.99. You know, so, you know, they're getting a hell of a deal. So they they thought, you know, and so I started fulfilling orders with these guys. Set up a little shop outside the street and Ferris have his people mailing the videos. And so it was like a little mail order company. I started and started doing that. So then I got a list from, Brian, of adult bookstores across the country that bought videotapes. And so I would call them up and then try to sell them videos. And I was selling them to them cheap, $14, $13 a piece. Everyone else was selling like $25, $30 a piece. So I cornered the market in about two months. I started with one person you know, making phone calls. I had 20 people making phone calls. And it got pretty big. And that's how I got introduced to the guy, Jim South. He has 99% of all the adult entertainment contracts in the United States. And so he's a good guy to know. I said, Yeah, Ferris, you gave me your number, told me to call you if I needed any advice and all, you know. And Ferris had reached out to him and told him about me. And so he was very helpful. So I had all these old time guys that were top notch in the porno industry giving me advice, helping me out. And that was pretty cool, you know. I had some doozies. I-, I sold cookies that were gold and diamond encrusted cookies. And I sold a box of six of them for $450 a piece. And people ate them up. They bought the hell out of them. Just crazy, you know? So everything's going well. I'm Porno King in Atlanta and I'm rocking and rolling. And me and Vic are hanging out. And, you know, a lot of guys are coming in and out. So I meet a lot of guys in Atlanta. Little Nikki, Nikki Scarfo, that ran the Philadelphia crime family. And he's different. Nikki Scarfo was in ADX. When he got in trouble, he got sentenced to, to life for over 40 years, I don't remember what he had, but put him in ADX Supermax. So he goes there, and I think he was there five or seven years, I don't recall, but a long time. And when you leave orientation, you're wearing what they call bus pants. There's no zippers or anything, it's just a pair of like stretch pants, right? And, and they're brown, and you're wearing like a hospital shirt that's brown. And so I seen him by the commissary, I think it was, and it was, I was with Vic. And here he, he comes up, and he's just a little skinny old. You know, I mean, he looked like he weighed eighty pounds. He gives Nick a hug. Well, Nick introduces me, and gives me a hug, and you know, hey, how you doing? And I had heard stories about him. I had actually met him five times prior to this, but I didn't really get to see him because he was in the hole. And Nick had sent me up there with care packages to, you know, just take him things that he needed. So that was the first time, I guess, freedom for him was about by the commissary. So yeah, I just became a friend of his, and he had a co-defendant there, uh, Faffy, Fafi Ainella, who was, I believe, was a captain in his crew. And me and him used to walk a lot, talk a lot, and just, you know, just hang out. And then there was uh, Barney Balermo. I think he was or is the alleged boss of the Genovese. Barney was real quiet, He's like a, a ruffled guy. He's kinda like, you know, his hair was always out of place, but he's a good guy, and he was very, real big into the law. So him and I would be in the legal's library all the time. So I was into the law pretty big, you know, I'd study in different cases and things like that. So I used to sit with him and chat with him about law and stuff and he was cool. There was some other guys. Vic Arena was there, Vic Arena was Columbo and then Patty Amato, his co-defendant, who was a, a skipper, I believe, was in the in the prison with us. So those two hung out together, real, they were real tight. So we all just walked around and Sal Merlino, of Philadelphia was there who was an arched enemy of Nicky Scarfels because his son is skinny Joey Bernalino who's the alleged boss of the Philadelphia. So there was a big thing about that. Nikki comes out of ADX screaming about I'm the boss. I guess in that lifestyle, if you're part of a group and the, the boss is the boss, the only way to dethrone him is to either get permission from the commission to execute him, or for him to retire, or to pass away from old age. But you can't just drive in there and say, hey, I'm the, I'm the new boss, you know? And and so that was his claim. And he was using John Gotti as a crux because, you know, like Dick Amuso and all, you know, all the bosses, part of their cases, most of them, all of them at that time had been charged with conspiracy to commit murder against John Gotti. And that was because he did not seek permission when Paul Castellano was murdered. And they believed that he had that involvement in it. So they all were trying to gun him down. So Nikki, of course, you know, hey, you know, uh, that's why the commission wants John dead is because, you know, he violated. And that's what Skinny Joey's doing. And, and they had been hating each other. I mean, uh, Skinny Joey allegedly shot Nicky's son and, and Nikki retaliated, shot somebody. I mean, it's just a big soap opera. But that's all Nikki wanted to talk about was him. He's the boss. He's the boss. And he's asking Vic about it. And I mean, this was probably a year after we're together. And he comes to me and wants me to talk to Vic on his behalf. To try to you know get Vic to side with him, and I said Nikki, I don't get involved with that with, with Vic. He, you know I mean I don't I feel out of place to say something to him. And he goes, no no Vic respects you and he, you're you're the only guy in here that's got his ears. And so you know he talked me into it. So I went to Vic and explained to Vic, you know this is Nicky's thinking, and and you know I know you know I don't talk to you about this stuff, but he feels he's still the boss and he wants you to intervene and blah, 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 said he reached out to Chin, and the Chin said that he's still the boss, and Gotti he says he's still the boss. Oh, Nicky got on an event in Marion before he went to ADX. He was in Marion, Illinois, and was able to talk to John through a an event, and John told him that he was still the boss, which I don't know if that's true or not, but, I mean, Nikki was serious about this. Nick decided, you know, okay, you know, we'll look into it, you know? And, and so, Mike Tassetta, you know, Jersey is, there, they're close to the Philly guys, so Mike Tassetta sent some fillers out there to talk to some people and they came back to Kenny Joey. And so there were some words were, were passed among one another and there's, you know, a lot of things going on. And uh, Bobby Luizzi, uh he was in Atlanta with us. And, you know, he's claiming he's a soldier. or ball, whatever. I don't know what he is, but I can assure you this, that he didn't speak to Vic Amuso not one time, <laughs> the whole time he was in Atlanta with us. Not once. He didn't speak to none of them guys. He didn't speak with Nikki. none of them. You know, they, they stayed away from him. So him and a guy, Ron Previty, he was somebody from Philadelphia. You know, they wrote a book and in the book, they put in there that they had a million dollar contract out on three guys that were supposed to get hit in Philly. Well, Bob Luizzi said that I put the contract out on these three guys on behalf of Vic and Nikki, And totally 100% made up story. It wasn't true. I heard that and I'm like, come on, man, this guy's crazy. But yeah, they, they threw me under the bus. You know, saying I did these things and, you know, those kind of things, when, when law enforcement hear that, they're going to believe what people say. It's going to benefit them. I'm close to Vic Amuso, so, you know, they're going to target me. Bobby Luizzi was gone from prison when this book came out, otherwise he and I would have probably had some problems. But I ended up going to the hole and Vic ended up going, we all went to the hole for four and a half months because of that, because of what he wrote in that book, you know, under investigation, you know. I don't care. If you want to cooperate against me, then go ahead and cooperate. I mean, I was stupid for trusting you. That's what I'd be thinking. But don't lie on me. If I sold you a pound of heroin, then that's what I sold you. But don't say I sold you 20 pounds. that's what a lot of people do and it's just not right, you know? So I'm in Atlanta, I'm meeting all these guys and, and I've become pretty close with Vic and I'm going out to meet guys out in the visiting room uh, on behalf of Vic. I'm making decisions for Vic. You know, I'm doing a lot of, to help help them out and, you know, creating these little businesses. We opened up some bookstores on the East Coast. We were shaking and moving, you know. I, I had an unlimited checkbook at this time, you know, I mean, I could do whatever I wanted. That's what I did all day, you know, all night. But my brother came up to the prison to visit me. I think, I think I've been there eight years or something. And the first time he ever came to visit me in prison. So I figured somebody died or something, you know. I go out to the visiting room and here he's in a three-piece suit, my brother is. So I, I go into the see him, he to sit down and he has a problem. He was selling drugs to Cedar Rapids and he had a partner, a buddy that he worked with and they had an office and, you know, cause he had a little construction business too. And so he had a safe in his office and he had a couple hundred thousand dollars in the safe, and he shows up, and the safe is empty. And he had some scales and some cameras and stuff like that in the safe. Well, his partner said the DEA came and seized everything. So my brother, was, you know, intimidated, he's not going to call nobody to find out if that's true or not. So he just believes it. A couple of days later, he's down in the basement of this building, and they each unit that rents from upstairs has a little like a closet area downstairs. So he's down there in that little area looking some stuff he had put away and he turns and he sees something shiny and he went behind the furnace there and looked out and his cameras and his scales and stuff that was in the safe were there. So of course, you know, he figured that his partner, you know, robbed him. So he comes and tells me the story and asked me to help. And at this time, there was, had been rumors in, in town and, and newspaper articles and stuff like that about me, where they say that people that would get in trouble would use my name, and that you know they were trying to associate me with organized crime and things like that. Though I hadn't spoke to my brother, and he thought that I was some big shot. In fact, that you know was false. I said, "Listen, what do you want? You know, what do you what do you want me to do? I'm in jail." He says, "Well, can you go and have somebody talk to him and get my money back?" And the biggest mistake of my life. I says, "You know what?" Can you visit tomorrow? And he said, "Yeah." I said, "Go back to the hotel, spend the night, come see me tomorrow, and don't talk to nobody about nothing." And so I go and I, I pull Vic up. I explain to him the situation, and I says, well, "What should I do?" Because uh, at this time, see, I didn't need to get Vic to help me. I mean, you know, I was in pretty tight with the, the Genovese, the Gambinos, you know, because you know I just knew them all. So he says, "Listen, you goes, going to send Joey Russo. Get a hold of Joey Russo, and you tell him." to go there and get your brother's money and tell them people they can't be taking no money from us. And you know, we had cell phones. And so I called Joey up and said, hey, listen, you know, I need a favor. This is the deal, blah, blah, blah. Joey said, no problem, he goes, you know, call me in a couple hours with all the information and you know, I'll head out there. So my brother shows back up, I go out and I say, listen, I got a guy that's gonna come and talk to you. You know, be polite and respectful and listen to him and tell him the truth. Don't lie to him. Just you know, let him see what he can do. Maybe he can get some money back for you. So, Joey comes into town with two other guys two days later. Before they even get there, they send out a bolo on them, looking for three Italian-looking Americans flying into the airport or going into a hotel. And it just so happened, one of my sisters worked at the Marriott. And this fax came over from the police department It's about being on the lookout for these guys. So already they're marked before they even get to town. My brother opening his mouth, telling people, my brother is in the mob and he's bringing a hitman here. You know, after I told him to be quiet, unbeknownst to these guys, they didn't know anything about it. So they get there and they go up to this guy's house. And as soon as they get up by the door, the door opens and this guy stands out on his front porch with a shotgun, telling him to get off his property. So he was waiting for him. Well, this pissed Joey off. You know, this is a young punk from Brooklyn, New York, you know, Bath Avenue, he's crazy, yeah. And so he told Floyd, he goes, go get me three rental cars and some weapons. (laughs) So the next morning, they're waiting on the dude, and he comes out, they kidnap him, they snatch him. They had him for about two minutes. (laughs) Then the feds came in, and they arrested him, you know, because they were watching him. They got arrested, Joey cooperated, and Joey had been doing some things, making some money in Iowa. And I got a case out of that, money laundering case. So my brother cooperated against me. So they took me from prison and took me to Cedar Rapids and wanted me to go in front of a grand jury. And I told them, Go f- themselves, you know, I'm on that prison mentality, you know, don't f- you. And so they let that slide and they sent me back to prison. Some more information came up. And they send me back to Cedar Rapids. Well, at this time, I can't go to the county jail there because half the jail is cooperating against me, even though I don't even know who they are. Because everyone's jumping on the case, and it's a high-profile case. You know, they got me on the TV talking about I'm in the mob, and you know. And in the East Coast, that's nothing, but in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, it's a huge deal. You know, they're like killing me on the TV and in the newspapers, and you know, put me in a county jail in Vinton, Iowa. And this is like the 1940s. It's you know, it's like Mayberry. The jail is one hallway. That's it. On that hallway, you have three cells on one side and two or three on the other. So they have men on one side and women on the other. (laughs) And this woman was on the side over there. And they have these food traps that you can open, you know, they put your tray in. They would leave them open. So you can look over into the female's cell and she can look over. So I started talking to this broad. Because I've been down for 15, 16 years at this time. You know, what's the guy going to do? He's going to start talking to the gal, you know? Hey there, maybe I, you know, you know that kind of crap, and you know, we started talking, passing notes to one another, talking dirty, and just you know, i was just wasting my time, just hanging out, you know, I don't know, maybe two weeks later, we're still talking and you know, acting crazy. About 4:35 in the morning, eight nine people came and snatched me out of my cell, took me to a conference room. And then this guy got in my face talking about, we know that you've been writing her. We want those letters and you can't withhold evidence from us. And so I go crazy, you know, I tell them all go f*** themselves. And they ended up slamming me down and, you know, tying me up doing all that crazy shit because I went, you know, because, you know, I've been in jail. You don't come and rush me in the morning like that. What are you going to do? That afternoon, I called my lawyer and I said, hey, who the f*** is this broad, right? And he, he freaked out. He goes, you don't know. I, no, I don't know who it is. Come to find out she was a gal that was involved in the murder of five people, three adults and two children. I didn't even know her name until that day they snatched me out of the room, you know? So I discovered that it was a kind of a horrific murder that her and her boyfriend tortured this guy and and they had two girls, six-year-old and nine-year-old, and they like broke the one girl's elbow, dislocated it to get this guy to talk. So the feds came to me and talked to me about this kind of stuff. And so I became a cooperating witness, a rat on the case. I told her that I could get someone that's doing life in prison to admit to the crime, and then it would take the heat off you, and they'd have to let you go, and she went for it. I needed to know what they were wearing. Oh, I mean, she told me that somebody I mean, talking about the little little kids were wearing these uh, one-piece baby, you know, the jumpsuit with the little zipper in them, you know, and the, the booty, the feet, you know? You know, little little kid's wearing I'm like, sick, man. It's you know, just. I mean, that was hard for me to do that. You know, it wasn't hard for me to cooperate right against her. You know, it was just hard to you know to sit there and try to keep a level head and hear all this crap and tell her, yeah, that's what I'd have done. You know, and when in fact you just want to just you know you know you're listening to this shit and you just want to like you know butcher. You know, she ended up turning over to me the locations of the bodies. And went undiscovered for like eight or ten years or something. Listen, if it was five guys. I wouldn't give a f- they could have butchered all of them. I, I you know, ain't none of my business. But don't come talking to me about killing little girls and shit. You know, and and in the beginning I did it just to get them kids, get them get them buried. You know, I mean it just crazy. You know, and a lot of people wouldn't believe that. You know, because oh, well, you're just trying to get out of jail, but guys that have been incarcerated for a long time and, and you know the deal, you know, of life, you know, just, you know, if you with f- women and kids, you know, you can't come back from that. I did it just because because of that, but then, you know, I did think, well, you know, maybe I'd get out of jail early. So I, I turned over the bodies, you know, the, the maps, and they went and discovered that that's where they were. And so I testified on a trial against Angie and she received the death penalty. And later it was appealed and she won and, and she got just a life sentence. So, I testified on her, and then I had to wait until all the appeals were done. I think I did another 14 years before I got out. But they put me in a witness unit, a protective custody unit. I was in a unit with several guys. I was with Sammy the Bold Gravano, and, you know, and Sammy was not the nicest guy. I was with Carlos Slater. He was one of the guys that started the Medellin drug cartel. They made that movie about him, Blow. But he was, he was there. And he's out now, he's home. I signed a a non disclosure even today. If I mentioned who was in there, I can get in in trouble. But if they are part of the public domain, you know, like Paul Schneider, with corn fed, Sammy the Bull, those kind of guys, you know, that people know already, you know, I can talk about them. But a lot of the people that I was with, I can't talk about. But I mean, it was okay there. I mean, I did a lot of reading and just kicking back and, you know. That was that. Uh... There was quite a few guys that I I met uh, through my incarceration that you know enlightened me on different things in life, and you know Fat Tony Salerno, Tony Ducks, even Frankie Lucasio, That's another one. He's, I mean, this guy hated everything. He hated life. I mean, if you looked at him, he would look back at you and say, "What the f- are you looking at?" You know. I mean, just he was just a mean man, but I got along with him well because I was in the law library and, and he was on his case big time. So he'd ask me questions, and I I try to talk to him and say as minimal as possible because you say the wrong thing, he's going to start barking. So after about two three months, I started laughing at him. All of them, were, you know, just real real good people, you know. And that's Chicago guys. That's you know Philly guys, New Jersey, New York. Doesn't matter. They're all gentlemen, you know. That's I guess molded me into who I am today, you know. I ended up doing 27 years straight before I was released and came back to Cedar Rapids. Um, Went to the halfway house and been working ever since. Because of the Angie Johnson, they gave me a reduction of sentence for cooperation, 10 level reduction. I only needed three to get out. It's exciting all the way up to like the last few days, then you get nervous. I didn't know what to expect. Things had changed, you know, they had the internet, computers, you know, I'd never been on one. You know, I had these little throwaway cell phones in the joint, but I I didn't know how to run like a Apple phone. And so it was, that was real crazy. And the first day I got out, I had four hour pass. A family member took me to Walmart to grab cosmetics and you know, stuff you need right away because it's right next to the halfway house. As soon as I get in there, I turned around and left. It just seemed like all these people were coming at me and, and I, I was thinking like violent things and just like, it was like, you know, cold sweat. And just I went back to the car and was, yeah. So the first couple of weeks was like that. But after that, everything was good. I mean, I got a job in the halfway house. I worked every day, like 12, 13 hours just to stay out of the halfway house. And uh, ended up being a general manager at a restaurant, and you know, communicating with the guests and stuff. So. It was nice, you know, to do all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so good getting out. Don't want to go back, that's for sure. <laughs> What's life look like now? Well, I'm a collector of fine things. <laughs> I have a tree company. You've heard of the of ash trees and the ash borer disease. I specialize in that. I took some classes and some courses and uh, became certified. So I'm, I'm a specialist in, in disposing them. And like just in the state of Iowa, there's 50 million trees that have to be removed. So a little niche of the market, and I jumped in on it. Uh, took some good clients, you know, got some good contracts with the cities and counties, and, and plus, you know, private individuals. And I just did a trailer park, and took out, I think, 600 trees. I got involved with that. We had a derecho, like an inland hurricane in Cedar Rapids. It wiped out 90% of, of the trees in the city of Cedar Rapids. I mean, it was the worst storm in history in, in Iowa. I mean, it was terrible. But I started doing that then is when I started getting into the tree business just to work my way since then, you know, last three years, two years. They've got a good company, I've got good contracts, million-dollar contracts, actually. So I'm doing well there, and I got a bunch of guys that work for me. I, I hire mostly guys that are out of the halfway house, or in the halfway house, try to give them some some work and try to steer them in the right direction. I've got a few that's been with me for a couple of years that I've helped from the halfway house, and they're doing well, which is good. Then I do collect things. I, I, that's what I do as a hobby. I, I can't show you my garages and my storage facilities because you'd think I was a, a hoarder, <laughs> but I got funny things, I got like a lamp that was in the first Tarzan movie, the first edition Playboy, of Marilyn Monroe, these kind of unique things, you know, the first Mickey Mouse stuffed animal, you know, the Tonka company, Tonka toys, they come out with this Volkswagen, and they were beetles, and they only came out for a couple of years, but I have the very first one that was ever made by them, so that's pretty cool, you know, just things like that, I got, none of this stuff's worth much, you know, but it's fun to, to collect, you know, a lot of people are surprised you know i mean doing 27 years you know i'm not a gangbanger you know i didn't get all these a bunch of tattoos i didn't get crazy you know I, I could have went the other way real easy you know i wasn't a you know a junkie i mean a lot of the guys unfortunately you know, a lot of drugs in the, in the facilities you know people can say you know like you know people talk about you and just stuff then none of that ever faces me i could care less what anybody says you know i'm just doing my thing and i'm i'm, I'm happy and you know, I surround myself with, with you know with good people and you know, I mean just try to do the right things in life. It took me many years to learn what responsibility is and then standing up and taking your own, you know, you know, being responsible for your actions I mean, this is is important. So I wish try to learn that at a younger age. I was raised, I would say, in, in prison than being raised on the street. And I was fortunate that I was around good people. You know the newspapers say a lot of things about a lot of people like you know Vic and mickey you know you know they're all killers and thugs and but they're gentlemen i mean they they are very respectful to everyone but they they teach you respect and you know teach you how to talk with people and uh, so i respect them for for that you know over the years getting to know all these guys you know they're all very respectful very polite and just you know good people good people